Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, an update on flu season and a look back at the impact of last year's Super Bowl throughout Minnesota. But first, this week's brutal cold canceled committee hearings at the state capitol for one day, but other than that, lawmakers were pretty much going full blast. MNN's Bill Werner joins us for a recap. Scott, bills were introduced this week in both the state house and the Senate. To legalize marijuana for recreational use in Minnesota, Republican Senator Scott Jensen from Chaska, who's a physician, supports the move even though he says... In terms of using it recreationally, I'm not going to stand before a group of people and say that's good for you. But I'm going to say that if it's legal, there can be a lot of benefits that come from that. Bill sponsor, Edina Democrat Melissa Franzen, outlined some of those benefits. Making it safer by removing the need for the black market to exist while eliminating the harm it has done to society. Less than an hour after supporters rolled out the bill, top Republicans said it does not have a chance of passing the state Senate this year. Majority Leader Paul Gazelka voicing multiple concerns. Everything from distracted driving to homelessness to uh, adolescent development to abuse uh, are things that we should be looking at. At the same time this year, we're talking about increasing funding for opioid abuse, and suddenly we want to legalize marijuana. It just seems like it's going the opposite direction. Senator Jensen responds, lawmakers must have the discussion and get in front of the issue of legalizing recreational marijuana, or... If we get behind, we're going to have kids using it. We're going to have marketing going on that's going to absolutely lure them in. Governor Tim Walz supports legalizing recreational marijuana, But any move will have tough going in the Republican-controlled Minnesota Senate. As the possibility of federal shutdown two looms, a key committee in the Minnesota House this week gave thumbs up to a proposed zero-interest short-term loan program for federal employees affected by a shutdown. Richfield Democrat Mike Howard says the objective... Find a way that we can practically support workers that, due to no fault of their own, are missing paychecks uh, and doing such vital work. But Sartell Republican Tim O'Driscoll questions whether certain people would be taken care of now, but there would be no way to help others if there's another shutdown. If we are concerned about unprecedented number one, what about 2.0 unprecedented, where Congress won't come to terms with the president? Lawmakers this week spotlighted Minnesota's opioid addiction epidemic, pushing a bill that would increase annual license fees on drug manufacturers and distributors to help pay for prevention and treatment. Senate sponsor Vernon Center Republican Julie Rosen says manufacturers have told her they want to be part of the process, but she says they have not said what that would look like. So my plea to them is that you can be a part of the process. You can help us with this. Help us figure out how we are going to save the next family and child. The bill would raise $20 million for manufacturers and distributors, which would go into a dedicated fund for programs to combat opioid addiction. The annual licensing fee would be based on company size with a half-million-dollar maximum. One of House Democrats' top agenda items, statewide paid family and medical leave for all workers, moved forward in committee this week. It would be paid for by contributions from employers and employees. Among the supporters, Christian March from St. Paul, who says her son has an aggressive form of brain cancer and much of his treatment is not covered by insurance. And if I don't work today, how will I pay our bills? The two goals I have are in direct tension with one another, Hunter's quality of life and not losing our home. 
Governor Tim Walz supports a statewide family and medical leave program. I believe it's really important. I'm, uh, I just think it's part of improving uh, economic uh, security for families. But Mike Hickey, with the National Federation of Independent Business, warns of job losses if employers' expenses are driven up by paid family and medical leave. If we make the load too heavy, we are going to uh, discourage people from starting small businesses. Governor Walls this week previewed more key elements of the state budget proposal that he'll unveil in a few weeks on February 19th. He told a group of mayors and other elected officials he wants a 24-month timeline to expand high-speed Internet access in greater Minnesota. Tackles once and for all and does a moonshot type of an approach towards uh, broadband in greater Minnesota. We don't have time to wait till 2025. The governor calls a House bill with 65 to $70 million in the right ballpark. Governor Walls this week continued his push for the state to pick up more of the cost of public schools, arguing less reliance on property taxes will mean more equity between districts. We asked the governor, will that mean income tax increases for Minnesotans? Um, I'm going to leave that one to wait and see, but I think you may be very surprised on this piece. The governor says there has not been a cut for individual income taxes since the year 2000. A lot of middle-class families need to see some relief somehow. Senate Tax Committee Chairman Lino Lakes Republican Roger Chamberlain says if the governor is talking about real tax reductions... We're on board, but uh, we're not on board with tax increases, which we can ill afford, and there's not much room left to move for the state and the people here. The governor says businesses did not use federal tax cuts to expand as advertised. But when asked if business taxes should increase in Minnesota, the governor would only say... I think we need to be more uh, thoughtful on how we're doing things. On a light note, Minnesota law would say that children do not need a permit to operate a lemonade or hot dog stand that under a bill that garnered support from youth at the state capitol this week. I think it's a nice and easy way to earn money for college. Senator Roger Chamberlain from Lino Lakes introduced the bill after a 13-year-old Minneapolis boy nearly had his hot dog stand shut down last year when someone complained he was selling without a permit. I have not in my entire life never been exposed to an outbreak of anything from buying lemonade or a hot dog on the street corner from anybody. Some years ago, lawmakers included an exemption for potlucks in Minnesota's food regulation laws. And a proposal unveiled this week to name the Labrador Retriever as the official state dog. The bill called Raven's Law, named for famed Minnesota outdoorsman Ron Shera's lab. This is not my idea, but it's a good one. And uh, I'm here to tell you, uh, we all know this will open a Pandora's box because everybody loves their dog. Ron Shera. Scott, thank you, Bill, and I'll have an update on some other stories from the Capitol from this past week when Minnesota Matters returns. You, my friend, have connections in the government. Yes, you. USA.gov, the official source for government information on thousands of topics. And like any good connection, there's no telling where it can take you. Why, one day you're getting student loan information. Next thing you know, you need job hunting tips. Today's road construction info could have you searching for telecommuting ideas tomorrow. The more you use USA.gov, the more uses you'll find for it. Passport applications, for example. They've been known to lead to a sudden interest in travel advisories. Our new mobile apps will even update you on the go. So whether you have information to get or ideas to give your government, check out USA.gov. Who knows? 
Lottery results today could lead to retirement planning tomorrow. USA.gov. With the right connections, there's no telling where you can go. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. State lawmakers this past week rolled out a variety of bills addressing gender violence prevention. For too long, victims and survivors of sexual assault have had our justice system fail them in their efforts to hold their violators accountable. Democratic Representative Carlos Mariani of St. Paul chairs the House Public Safety Committee, which looked at several measures this past week. Representative Kelly Moeller of Shoreview introduced a bill requiring law enforcement agencies to adopt policies for sexual assault investigations. All survivors of sexual assault deserve justice, no matter where they live in Minnesota. We know that there are barriers not only to survivors reporting sexual assault, but also to the investigation and prosecution of those cases when survivors do come forward. Also this week, legislation improving the definition of criminal sexual conduct to include non-consensual, intentional touching of another person's clothed buttocks got its first hearing in a House committee at the state capitol. Representative Mary Kanesh Pudin of New Brighton shared a letter from a constituent who was groped at a gym in 2017 and was told there was nothing she could do, the letter concluded, Our laws should reflect what we know to be true. A non-consensual groping of the buttocks is sexual assault. It is time we change this law and make sure that the punishment fits the crime. A bill closing a loophole in prosecuting sexual misconduct cases cleared its first committee hurdle in the Minnesota House. Republican Representative Lisa Damoth of Cold Spring says she was prompted to craft the bill in part because of two cases in Dakota County involving high school teachers and coaches who had sexual relations with 18-year-old high school students. Our criminal sexual conduct laws make this conduct a crime if the student is 17. But when that student turns 18, it is currently no longer a crime. Damoth's bill raises the age of consent from 18 to 21 if the victim is a secondary student and the perpetrator is a school employee or contractor and in a position of authority over the student. Another bill moving forward at the state capitol would set up a task force to address the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women in Minnesota. Nicole Matthews with the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition says it's a serious problem that has been underreported for too long. We have to look at racism and how racism plays and whose stories get lifted up and highlighted in the media. We have to look at the system's responses to it. Matthews says the time is now to enact change. Native women suffer the highest rates of violent victimization than any other race in the country. Most people don't know that. At a hearing on Tuesday, Ojibwe elder Mary Lyons, whose sister was murdered in 1989, testified before lawmakers and gave an historical perspective to the devastating impact of gender violence on cultures of color in the U.S. When you have a history such as ours, first residents of this land, we don't have a common ground memory to move forward with together as a people, all people of color. A simulation of Native people have been since the encounters of the white man resting their feet on their homelands. Through their religious beliefs of what they believed they were rebuking when they first witnessed the lifestyles of us. Heathen lifestyles for the final judgment that was displayed upon us. Chilly Indians saved the man. The separations of land, dismantling of families, and early slavery of our people played a big part of the shift and is very evident today. We work twice as hard to still fit in. The historical backlashes of these pains resulted in alcohol and drug abuse, leaving our children to not trust relationships as forever connections. Our women were silenced by being victimized by rape, 
being beaten in these religious schools in the early days, and even death without a thought was a way of life for us. Our women have been forced into prostitution, victimizing as being worthless. It is just not our women we talk of. We also include our LGBT, transgender communities, and our young men. Our women witnessed such horrific harms that it left an imprint on our characters of how to fit into a white man's world. We have been silenced much too long. Our history has been hitting, hidden as truth does hurt and it has repercussions. Today is a new day with new problems and new resolutions, new solutions. At the same hearing, lawmakers gave bipartisan support to a bill that would eliminate the voluntary relationship defense in the state's criminal sexual conduct statute, also known as the marital rape exception. Democratic State Representative Zach Stevenson of Coon Rapids authored the bill. Under existing Minnesota law, if a man drugs his wife and then rapes her while she is unconscious, he cannot be prosecuted for rape in Minnesota. Stevenson said that's unacceptable in 2019. We like to think of marital rape exceptions as an artifact of history, as a relic of a time when a woman was considered the property of her husband. But we still have a limited marital rape exception on the books in Minnesota today. At the hearing, Jenny Thiessen testified about her former husband drugging and raping her in 2016 and filming it. Thiessen says of the day she found the video. The worst part of that day was my mom was at my house when I discovered the rape videos. My mom and I sat and cried as I discovered I had been drugged and raped by my husband. No parent should ever have to experience their daughter in complete and utter pain. Thiessen said the most serious charges against her husband were dropped because of the marital rape exception law. At the hearing, Republican Representative Marion O'Neill of Maple Lake was clearly moved by the testimony of victims. We talk about sex trafficking, and uh, the sad statistic I heard recently is that a, a person that's been sucked into sex trafficking has a life expectancy of about five years. It's horrifying. It's tragic. It's disgusting. And I just want to say to any members of the public listening to this, if you are a man and you go and buy sex, this is what you're doing. This is what you're doing. We want to stop sex trafficking. We need to stop the men that are buying sex. You want to heal the community? We need to stop buying sex. We'll be tracking all of these bills and more having to do with sexual and gender violence in the days ahead as the legislative session continues. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Flu activity is picking up across the state. MN's Tasha Radel has the latest. That's right, Scott. For the first time this flu season, activity is now considered widespread. So what does this exactly mean? Melissa McMahon, an epidemiologist at the State Health Department, explains. Our activity is still pretty low um, in terms of numbers. So for our geographic spread, widespread, the technical definition of that just means that it is, um, its activity is increasing in all regions of Minnesota. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the activity is high in any or all regions of Minnesota. So we are still experiencing low activity, um, but the activity seems to be creeping up pretty much everywhere in Minnesota, um, which is why we decided to go to widespread, because that was 
that was accurate, and that's um, that's how you know we we make that delineation between regional and widespread. And you um, know, so, do you think it's too early then to say if we're entering into the peak of the season? It is probably too early. Um, you know, it's still it's still pretty low activity for what we would consider a peak, even in a even in a low activity year. Um, but we've also had pretty high activity years recently, so it, this could be the peak activity. Um, but it's a little too soon to say. Um, we have had previous years where it's peaked in early March, um, and so we're not we're not out of the woods yet of uh, of reaching peak activity for the year. And so, when we talk about that activity, is it too late to get a flu shot this season? No, it's definitely not. Um, we like to say that it is never too late to get a flu shot. Uh, ideally, you want to get it two weeks before you would be exposed to influenza, which is why we typically recommend it earlier in the fall. But even if you if you haven't gotten it yet, we absolutely recommend it. Even if you've already had influenza, the vaccine prevents um, three to four strains of influenza. So even if you've had one um, already this year, if you get a flu shot, it will protect you against the other strains. Um, so it's never too late to get a flu shot. And it, are we able to tell um, how the vaccine is working this year? Has it been a good match for what's out there? Um, you know, there haven't been any studies yet this year. It's a little too early, and there's not quite enough data for them to make any any really good, um, basically to get really any good answers on that right now. But we can tell that it's mostly the 2009 uh, H1N1 uh, strain is what we're seeing most of. It's an influenza A strain. Um, and the vaccine tends to be a good match for that strain. Um, so the fact that, you know, that strain has a good match to the vaccine and that strain seems to be what we're seeing the most of, um, typically that would lead the vaccine efficacy to be higher. Um, we don't have actual estimates just yet, um, but we're, we're pretty hopeful they're going to be good this year just because of that. Thanks again to my guest, Melissa McMahon, an epidemiologist at the Minnesota Department of Health. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Everybody try to stay healthy out there. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. It's been a year since Minneapolis hosted Super Bowl 52 and the Eagles beat the Patriots in a high-scoring, entertaining game. The Super Bowl 53 is set to kick off this weekend in Atlanta, Georgia, with the Patriots returning to the big game to take on the Los Angeles Rams. Gives us the opportunity to look back at Minnesota's week in the spotlight in late January and early February of 2018. 
Earlier this week, MN Sports Director Mike Grimm chatted with Meet Minneapolis Senior Public Relations and Communication Manager Kristen Montag about last year's event and what it's meant for the city, the state, and the region. A year ago this weekend, it was very exciting, certainly for the city of Minneapolis with Super Bowl 52 here. And so a year removed from that now, uh, and I know some of these numbers have been released in the meantime, but um, I think people, this is a good weekend to reflect a little bit. Can you give us a little rundown of what indeed, now looking back, the economic impact was for the city, for businesses, and all of that for that weekend? Sure. Well, all of the, the results were reported from uh, a Rockport analytics study that the Minnesota Host Committee uh, commissioned over the course of the Super Bowl last year. So the results were really great. Uh, the total economic impact, which was an inter- incremental contribution to the area's uh, GDP, was $400 million. So that um, that's a pretty significant boost, and it includes um, you know money that went directly to businesses that were serving visitors and participating in hosting the events, um, which was like two hundred and two million dollars of that benefit, and then even local supply chain firms saw more than uh, ninety million dollars. So a lot of money was coming into the, the pockets of people who live in this area. Certainly there was um, also a significant investment through resources, time, workforce, all of that. Um, And so at the end of the day, it would appear that this all paid off uh, with with this big economic return, even though there was a lot of money spent to, to bring the event here. Sure. You know, uh, I think, you know, you have to look at the fact that that money was, majority of what was spent was raised by donations from corporations. And, um, you know, the host committee went out and worked with all the local businesses to to bring together the funds that they needed to make it happen. So um, ultimately, you know, the money that was brought in from outside of the area is what what is being looked at and what where the success really is. It's, you know, stuff that wouldn't have happened if not for the Super Bowl being here. And in addition to the the numbers where you put, yes, this is a number uh, of money, uh, an amount of money that was brought in, um, stuff that you can't necessarily put a price tag on. Have you had any feedback or any kind of uh, thought on what it did in terms of creating, you know, a more positive image of Minneapolis? Because let's face it, generally the city and the region was lauded for, for how well it uh, conducted itself as a host city last year. So what, what kind of impact can that have, just the general image building of Minneapolis? Well, sure. I mean, you really can't even put a price tag on that because it's um, the kind of um, the kind of image building and awareness building that you receive from having a Super Bowl is something that you know you you can't necessarily measure, but it's it's out there. You you know that people remember that it was here, uh, whether they heard that it was cold or snowy or not, you know, people would have expected that from us. Um, it, I think what it did is it showed that we could execute an amazing worldwide attention-getting event in our city in the winter, and I think that definitely got some attention. Um, it's helped us with business, quite frankly. We had uh, meeting planners come to town during the event so they could see us executing a, a big event like the Super Bowl, and um, it put us in the consideration set for meetings and conventions and, and large groups of people that would maybe never have come here otherwise. So that that is a, a real life benefit that has happened for us. Kristen Montag is with us from Meet Minneapolis here on Minnesota Matters.
as you think back to this weekend last year, it was so exciting, Super Bowl 52 here. Um, put us in the minds now of those going through the same thing this week and now this weekend in Atlanta. I suppose it's a mix of emotions, whether it's excitement, anxiety, uh, you know, hoping that things run smoothly. Uh, what, what was that like for you and, and your staff and, and all of those in charge of, uh, of hosting the event last year? Yeah, you know, I'm sure that they have very similar um, thoughts and feelings going into theirs uh, in Georgia right now. But, you know, really it's it's an all-hands-on-deck situation. Everybody just uh, is here working hard together to make sure that we had an excellent event. Um, you know, you probably have a mix of those types of emotions that you mentioned, but um, the majority of the time you're just busy trying to make sure you're getting everything done and all the events are going well. Um the visitor influx really begins now. Like the people are coming in for for the weekend. Um, so you know when we we started seeing that the numbers really increase. We had people throughout the ten days leading up to the Super Bowl, but it's that Friday where you know you're going to get the majority of the people who are coming for just the game and the weekend events. So um, that's that's kind of where the excitement really takes off. So the Super Bowl's in the rearview mirror. Um, I know there were thoughts last year and questions after the game. Will Minneapolis get another Super Bowl? Um, obviously a long time. I mean, you, you can't say never, ever, or could it come back in the next 10 years? What is the process now if indeed Minneapolis says, yes, we're interested in doing this again? And what, where would you, if you could, place chances uh, of, of us getting this thing back? You know, I, I don't think you would ever – Never say never, you know, but um, it's not something that right now we are looking to a specific year. Um, there's always potential. I mean, we had it in the past and we, you know, we had it come back last year. So it's possible, but right now we're really focused more on other um, pursuit of other ongoing events that, that we, some that we've had and some that we haven't had that we want to bring here. You know, we've got the Final Four coming up in April. We've got the Women's Final Four coming in 2023 a number of other NCAA events. We've got WWE events, U.S. Olympic events that we are interested in, some that have come here, some that haven't. So we are really in the hot pursuit of bringing more events to town that will um, continue to elevate the, the city and the the destination. Last one for you, Kristen Montag with Meet Minneapolis. You mentioned the Final Four. That's the men's Final Four at U.S. Bank Stadium coming up uh, in the first weekend in April. Um, can you just give us a quick update on how planning and, and I guess, I mean, the plans are mostly, I would assume, in place, how uh, things are uh, now uh, progressing toward uh, that big weekend here in uh, Minnesota? Yeah, you know, uh, things are definitely in motion. The host committee, uh, which is actually called the Minneapolis Local Organizing Committee, they have a staff working really hard full-time on getting ready for the big event. And We've had um, monthly visits from the, our friends at the NCAA, and um, we had a, you know, a kickoff just uh, a couple weeks ago, so we're really um, looking for some of the announcements to come on what, what's going to happen with some of the other public events, the music, the um, the, the dribble where kids can come out and participate, getting people to, interested in going to the Fan Fest at the Convention Center, which is a really fun family event. Um, the Friday of Final Four, which is amazing that they've got the stadium open on Friday and anybody can come in and watch the practice games and the All-Star Games. So it's really, there's a lot of opportunity for, for the area to get involved in and really enjoy this event. Yeah, certainly uh, everyone's looking forward to that. Well, Kristen, uh, it was a year ago uh, this weekend that things were very busy here in Minneapolis, a little uh, tamer uh, this week and this weekend, uh, and it's kind of fun looking back and certainly a huge impact for the city and the state. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you.
That's MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm and Meet Minneapolis Spokeswoman Kristen Montag. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.